Well, this morning, I want us to get right into uh, the message. Kids are going to be in here with us today. It's a family Sunday, and I have treat bags for you all in just a moment, but before we do that, what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of pick up on events that took place 504 years ago. We're looking backwards to October 31st, 1517, and despite what some of the kids might assume, I wasn't alive then. Uh, not, not been around that long. I just love that time period, so I know things about it. But we're going to go back 504 years ago. We're going to talk about a town on the other side of the world in a place called Wittenberg, Germany, where a relatively unknown and not very popular person at this point, he was a Catholic priest and a professor of theology named Martin Luther lived and ministered. Now, I understand that not everybody knows all about Martin Luther's story. Some people get confused. Are we talking about Martin Luther King? And no, we're not. We're talking about someone who lived much longer before that in Wittenberg, Germany in the 1500s. And to give us a little glimpse of Martin's story, I want us to watch a little video here. I think you'll enjoy this to get to know this our friend Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Fun. So this is the story of our friend Martin Luther. And we're going to talk a little bit about Martin Luther today and a little bit about what Martin was responding to, that idea that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching you could buy forgiveness from God and how that led to events that took place 504 years ago this very day, October 31st. So kids, if you want to come up to the front right up here, we have some treat bags for you guys with some Reformation coloring sheets and word searches for the older kids. Come on up. And you have a little snack in there and your crayons and everything. So come up here, grab your treat bags, and we're going to get right into the sermon today. All right. Now, on your paper that you're taking back, there'll be a, a phrase that mom and dad might not even know. That phrase is a Latin phrase at the top of one of your coloring sheets, and it says, post tenebras lux. It's a Latin phrase that's often been used to describe the Reformation. What it simply means is what's underneath it on your paper. It means after darkness, light. How much the change of the Reformation brought really cannot be overstated. It was, a, it was like going into a room that's pitch black and someone turns on the lights and everything becomes clearer. This is what the Reformation did 500 years ago. So last week, adults you were, who, who were in here with me will remember, we, we looked at how in, in the year 1516, Martin Luther was studying a text of the Bible that changed everything for him. The text was Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Martin Luther read these words from the Apostle Paul where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And verse 17 changed everything for Luther as he read, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was this text that was like the light of the gospel turned on for Martin Luther. And he saw for the very first time what the good news of Jesus Christ really was. He understood that salvation is by faith alone, not by works, not by penance, not by the sacramental things that the Roman Catholic religion was teaching the people. The light of Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17 began to cause Luther to want to see his church, the people he loved and cared about, and the movement of Christianity as a whole come back to the scriptures as the highest authority and guide for life. 
So it was having realized this in 1516 that started Luther on the path to what took place on October 31st of 1517. It's actually a response to a man named Tetzel, who was a traveling preacher. Preacher. He was going around selling indulgences, selling promises of forgiveness from the Roman Catholic Church. And when Luther saw it and heard what was happening and saw the impact that was having on people, it lit the flame and the light of the Reformation began to spread far and wide. I want us to understand this idea uh, today together about what it was that Luther was responding to. This idea that Rome was telling people that you can purchase forgivenesses, what we called in, they called indulgences, by giving money to the church or by doing certain good acts you'd receive in the video. Those were the little red papers. They were handing them out. Someone would give them a coin. They'd put the coin in the, in the coffer, and they would hand off an indulgence. And that indulgence promised your sins will be forgiven. And these Roman Catholic priests were making money off of this. Now, the reason they were doing this is because Roman Catholic theology was teaching that the Pope had access to something they called the treasury of merit. Now, to be very honest about this and and to be very clear, I think this is one of the most repugnant aspects of Roman Catholic theology for any truly convinced biblical Protestant. Anyone who believes in the gospel and the finished work of Christ, hearing this today, you should see what is at the heart of, of what caused Luther to respond the way he did. Here's what the treasury of merit is according to Roman Catholic teaching. Rome says that in the heavenly places, there's a special treasury. In more modern terms, we could say like a big vault or a bank account, right? And it's filled up with all the good works that have been put in there by the saints and the martyrs who have died. And remember, if you don't know, there's a difference between how Rome defines a saint and how the Bible defines a saint. The Bible says all of God's people, every one of us who are Christians, we are saints. We are made saints by God's decree. But Rome says, no, a saint is a special person, a person who's way better than any of us who just come into here and and are a Christian on a regular basis. Saints are extra holy, extra good, extra special, special people who God loves more than the average person. And so building upon this mis- Uh, misunderstood idea of a saint, they thought, Rome was teaching, that these saints, they were so good, so special, that they actually had more righteousness, more merit, more good works than what was needed to save them personally. And so when they died, all the extra good things they had get to go into the treasury of merit. And in the treasury of merit, the Pope can go in and take some of those good works, take some of that righteousness, take some of that merit, and give that to someone who doesn't have enough, who needs to have their sins forgiven. They can make this transfer from one account to another. This is what they called an indulgence. It was a promise that the the Pope would go into the treasury of merit. If you had a letter of indulgence, the Pope would go in, take some righteousness, and give it to you to cover your sins. And once this idea was developed, it became evident to everybody, well, we could use this idea to raise a lot of money or to make people do a lot of different things by promising them we'll give them an indulgence, forgiveness of sins. And so they began to sell them or more as Rome would say, they began to give them in response to people giving alms. They didn't say it quite so crass as just purchase your forgiveness, though that's what was happening. Now, as a Christian who believes the Bible and understands the gospel, do you see how offensive this really is to the heart of what Christ has done to save his people? 
A true Christian believes not in the treasury of merit as Rome defines it and has their whole system built out. A true Christian believes if there's a treasury of merit, it's filled up by the work of one person alone, Jesus Christ. And that treasury wouldn't need to have anything added to it from anybody else because it is as full as it can be. And the Bible tells us that the riches of Christ, the salvation that Christ gives his people, is complete. It's given fully and freely to everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. There's no earning it. There's no buying it. Nothing like that. There is no extra righteousness that can be given to you from someone else because nobody else is righteous enough to save themselves. Only Christ Jesus alone was perfect. Only he has deserved salvation. It's all about Christ and Christ alone. Only he can save someone from their sins. So it was Luther reading in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he said, my salvation, the gospel message, is not tied at all to the righteousness of the saints, the righteousness of the treasury of merit that could be applied to me. My salvation, the gospel Paul is not ashamed to preach, comes from the righteousness of God being given to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. This was the light that Luther saw. He began to understand, as Paul goes on in Romans, uh, he writes that in Romans 6.23, that salvation, this, this gift of God, is the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. It doesn't need to be bought. It doesn't need to be earned. There's no need to buy an indulgence to be saved. There's only way to be saved is to come to Jesus in faith. Look, we don't need indulgences. In fact, there cannot be indulgences because a Christian's sins are covered by the grace and righteousness of Christ freely and fully giving that salvation to all who have faith in him. There is nothing more. There can be nothing more. We don't need anything more than Christ alone. This is what Paul celebrates in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to how Paul talks about salvation and what we receive from Christ. Blessed be, he writes in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forward in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his Glory. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's no mention of the Pope. There's no mention of indulgences. There's no mention of the treasury of merit. There is Christ and salvation found fully in him. 
This is the good news. This is the light of the true gospel. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. In him are all the riches, all the blessing, all the forgiveness, all the righteousness that we need. And through him, faith in him, it is lavished upon us. The Pope doesn't need to go in and take a little bit out to cover a little bit of things. Jesus gives us all of it fully in him. It's not through the saints. It's not through indulgences. It's not through our works being counted up and weighing them out. Was I better or worse in this life? Salvation is only found by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a full, complete salvation. And this is what Martin Luther begins to understand. In 1516 and then in 1517. And so when this man that I mentioned earlier, Tetzel, comes... And he begins preaching in Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther is. He comes in guilting people into purchasing these indulgences, convincing them they need to buy them, give what legal, meager amount of money you have, and purchase this indulgence. And Martin Luther begins to see firsthand how unscriptural and how abusive this practice is. Luther walked through the streets of Wittenberg and would find people drunk in the middle of the streets. And he would say, you are a Christian, one of my church members. You, you should not do this. This is open sin. And the man drunk would pull out his letter of indulgence and say, Father Martin, I've paid for my sins to be forgiven. Luther saw what was taking place. And so Luther responds as Luther thought was best. He calls for theological discussion among the doctors of sacred scripture, <laughs> right? That seems the best way to handle it, doesn't it? Let's have a debate and let's talk. No, what Luther knew was that he needed to get the true teaching of the Bible out. He needed people to see what he had saw in the scriptures, that this was not the way to salvation, that salvation was found in Jesus Christ alone. And so he calls for debate publicly. He wants others to come with him and talk about these issues so the light of the gospel can be spread. And he went and did this as one would do to call for a debate and a discussion. He wrote out a series of theses, 95 of them, points that he wanted to debate, wrote them in Latin, took them, and went to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517, and nailed them to the door. Now, so we understand this wasn't a big act of great defiance for Luther. As much as that would that, you know, be awesome, you know, that there they are, they're in the Roman Catholic Church, they're worshiping and, and doing the sacraments as they're supposed to do, and here's Luther at the door just nailing it on there and open defiance of everyone. That wasn't really what took place. Luther went and posted the 95 Thesis there, among all the other things that were there. There would have been notices about the upcoming harvest parties and a farmer who lost a pig. It was a bulletin board. <laughs> and Luther tacked his note on there in Latin so that the scholars would be able to read it. And what took place was really the providence of God to use that moment, a very ordinary moment, something we happens probably countless times throughout church history. We never know about anyone else doing it. We know Luther did it because some students of Luther's happened to see him nailing it to the door. And being able to read Latin as university students, they went and read and they said, this is incredible. These truths, these things that he's saying, the 95 Thesis, need to be Known And so they took down the copy of the 95 Thesis and went to the printer in town. They translated it into German, and he began to print copies in the language that everyone could read, and they began to give it out to people. And soon, the 95 Thesis, they weren't just something that were nailed to that church door calling for debate. They were in the hands of everybody, reading these things, thinking about these things that Luther was bringing up. And Luther, in the 95 Thesis, makes some really good points, raises some things that really did need to be thought about. 
For example, I, I love how he begins. If you ever read the 95 Theses, I'd encourage you to do so. It won't take you all that long. It's really just one and then a sentence, two and a sentence, and so on and so forth. You can read it fairly, fairly quickly. I'll just give you a few of them so you can see some of the things Luther was talking about. The first one is probably one of my favorites. Thesis number one that he begins with, it says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And he follows it up with thesis number two. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. Okay, so the first one should be non-controversial. Jesus said repent. He means for us to always repent. We would go, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, Jesus says this repeatedly. Matthew, Mark, you read about it all the time. But then point two is, oh, and repentance is not what you do when you go in to give penance in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, now attention is peaked. <laughs> Luther rightly was beginning to understand and calling Christians to know that God expects us to truly repent of our sins, which means turn from our sins, put those things to death, and follow Christ. It's not the ritual, it was not the sacrament of penance that Rome was offering and still to this very day offers in confession and satisfaction. Doing that will not save anybody. No matter how often you go into the confessional, you will not find salvation in the Roman Catholic system. Luther, as I said, was watching people abuse the practice of confession and the practices of indulgence in his day, and Luther knew it was leading countless people to hell. So in Thesis 32, he makes that really clear. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Nothing apart from true repentance and faith in Christ and him at work in us will save us. Luther was understanding this, and he understand then how serious this matter really was. There is no other salvation, not in Luther's day, not in our day. And you and I as Christians today must be clear and stand firm upon this truth in this light and push back against the darkness. The debate that Luther wanted to have over what indulgences were as he wrote them out in the 95 Thesis, never took place. The Roman Catholic leadership, as they saw this being widely distributed and the common people beginning to ask questions they did not want them to be asking, got angry. And so they sent messages through the official channels, and it was actually Johann Staupitz, who I mentioned last week. He was Luther's mentor and his, his friend. And Staupitz is the one who had thought, because Luther was struggling as a monk, understanding his sin and never finding forgiveness because he didn't understand faith in Jesus Christ, he was the one who sent Luther on to become a professor and a doctor of sacred scripture. And, and he thinks, well, you know, it didn't quite work because here's Luther with his 95 theses. But, you know, what may work is if I kind of redirect Luther a little bit. He wants to have debate. He wants to talk. I'm going to send him to the Augustinian Conference in Heidelberg the next year, 1518. And there, among some more friendly individuals. He can kind of talk about these things, and maybe some of us can calm him down a little bit, and we can avoid catastrophe, because Rome is very angry. The people are discussing this intensely. Maybe we can head this off, but the plan, well, it kind of backfires yet again, because Luther only moves from the moment he nails those documents to that castle church door until 1518. He only moves farther into his biblical convictions and grows as the reformer that God is turning him into. What results in 1518 is a document that, again, if you've never read, I would encourage you to do. It's called the Heidelberg Disputation, or sometimes known as the 28 Theses. 
So you can start with the 95 and then go read the 28, and you're like, oh, this was easy, this was great, and it was a lot shorter. What we find in the 28 theses is that Luther, far from turning back, has stepped much closer to understanding the gospel rightly, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Luther opens in the Heidelberg Disputation with the first three theses talking about how law and human works will never save anyone. Our very best actions, Luther says, apart from faith, they are tainted by sin. So strive as much as you want, work as much as you want, do as much as you want. You will never earn your own salvation, Luther says. He goes on in theses 16 to 18 to say this, the person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin so that he becomes doubly guilty. But speaking in this manner does not give cause for despair, but instead stirs the desire to humble oneself and seek the grace of Christ. It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. What Luther is talking about here in these theses is he's arguing that we must, humanity must, every one of us, humble ourselves before God in order to fully rely upon his grace. This is the only way to be saved. The only way to experience salvation is not to work harder, it's to recognize you are incapable of saving yourself. And you need saving. You have to acknowledge your sinfulness, you have to acknowledge your inability, and because of that, you have to humbly rely upon the grace of God. Luther is shedding light, massive amounts of light, on what it means to truly be saved through the Heidelberg Disputation. In number 25, he writes this, He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. I love 26. This this is good. This should be on on a mug for you or a sticker or something, right? The law says do this, and it is never done. Grace says believe in this, and everything is already done. This is the gospel that Luther understands. This is what the Bible is telling us. As Luther began to see these great truths, he had to share them with everyone he possibly could. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, It is for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Galatians 2.16 says, For we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. It is by God's grace given to us through faith in Jesus Christ alone that we are saved. The Bible's clear. This is the gospel. This is the light that was coming on at the Reformation in 1517 that began to change everything in the world. As you heard part more of Luther's story in there, you heard, I mean, amazing things happen in Luther's life, right? And from 1517 and 1518 and 1519, 1520, there's all kinds of stories we could go into and all kinds of amazing things that took place. But here's what I want to do to bring this to us is we need to understand today the clear light that the Reformation started, the flame that was lit at that time is still burning, is still going strong today, and it's been entrusted to us. We are the heirs of the Reformation. 
And what we do with this message of the gospel, with this clear understanding that we have, that you cannot save yourselves, you cannot buy, you cannot earn it, you must turn to Jesus for his grace with faith in him alone, that is the only way to be saved. What we do with this message matters intensely. There's so much darkness around us today, so much confusion, so much false teaching. You and I who understand the gospel need to take the light into these dark times. Understand today that God still saves people through the light of the gospel. And every one of us, as we've talked about time and time again in scripture, are born into the kingdom of darkness, but the cry of the Reformation is still true. After darkness, light for those who hear and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, before we leave Today, I, I have one more thing to share with you, an important announcement that I'm going to make. Morgan and Tyler, if you would come to lead us. I, I'm going to kind of call an audible. Could we, could we sing Give Me Jesus again? Could we just sing that? That'd be great. We're going to sing the song we sang earlier, Give Me Jesus, so you, you know these words. We're just going to take a few moments to respond. And, and like I said, I have something more to, to share this morning, but we need a few minutes to respond to the Lord about this beautiful, life-changing truth that he helped Martin Luther see in 1517, helped countless others since that time see. And today, you and I, we have been entrusted with this message. So we need to examine our own hearts. We need to truly ask, have we repented of our sins or are we relying on our works, our ability to come to church, to do religious activities? To, are we thinking those things are going to save us or are we truly, fully, humbly relying on the grace of God? Have we been changed by him? Are we being guided by him? Luther, the man who feared and was ashamed of the message as we talked about last week, became unashamedly bold and a reformer who changed the world. Have you had that kind of encounter with the living God? And if not, today's the day. I keep saying it because we need to keep hearing it. Some people are pretending. You're playing at being a Christian. It's not real. It hasn't changed things. It's not everything in your life. It's just something that's added on to a weekend when, you know, the weather's bad and I can't go do what I want to do or I don't have other plans. This isn't the message to mess around with. The gospel demands everything of us. And what we do with it matters for us and for those around us. So we're going to sing, give me Jesus. He's the point of it all. Him, him alone. And we're going to take a few minutes to respond. Don't rush off. I do want you here in a few moments to share this announcement. But let's sing and respond to the Lord before we do anything else this morning. Would you stand with us as we respond to Jesus?